With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I visit with Hughes Hubbard Council Mike DeBernardis. We consider the first quarter's FCPA enforcement record. We look at the Airbus case, the Cardinal Health case, several individual FCPA prosecutions, acquittals, and indictments that were filed. And then we take a look at where FCPA enforcement may be going into the second quarter of 2020 and then in the second half of the year. It's a fascinating exploration, which I know you will enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have back with me one of my favorite guests, Mike DiBernardis. Mike is counsel at Hughes Hubbard. And I asked him if he would come and visit with me about Q1 FCPA enforcement. So, Mike, with that uh, introduction, first of all, welcome. And uh, I hope uh, you and your family are staying safe these days. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I'm, I'm, uh, it's always nice to to come on and, and talk with you. It's always fun. I think, especially now, it's I've been looking forward to this as a as a useful distraction from the the sort of doom and gloom that we're hearing every day. But yeah, the, the family's doing well, and and uh, you know everybody's adjusting to the new reality we've got going on right now. So, Mike, uh, the actual FCPA enforcement in Q1 was, uh, in many ways, the biggest ever, uh, and in some ways, kind of the smallest ever. But I found a lot of lessons for the compliance practitioner. So maybe we could start with just the two cases that uh, were brought. One was an SEC case, Cardinal Health, and the second was the world's biggest ever, Airbus. But I found Cardinal Health really interesting uh, for a couple of points, but I wanted to get maybe your perspective uh, on this, uh, what appeared to be a fairly routine SEC books and records actions. But what did you see? Yeah, it's interesting you say that, that fairly routine, because, you know, first glance at this case, it does look uh, pretty standard for, for what we've come to expect from SEC, FCPA enforcement. Uh, you know, it, it, it checks all the boxes. It's it's an internal controls, books and records case, uh, not not the bribery provisions. Uh, re, you know, a relatively modest penalty amount of. I think the penalty was actually two point five million dollars. You, know, you know, it's a healthcare provider. The, the conduct involves China, which is which is really 
uh, become a focus of the SEC. So in that sense, it really did seem like a, uh, you know, kind of a standard case. The, the, when you dig into the facts a little bit, it really, it, it's, it's an interesting fact pattern because, you know, you, you've got a, you've got a company Cardinal health, um, that basically acquired some, some business in China. Um, and the, the misconduct in this case was not, uh, was not really taken by Cardinal employees. I mean, in a technical sense, they were Cardinal employees, but essentially, uh, Cardinal China was acting as a distributor for a European uh, company and also entered into what they call a human resources and HR services agreement. So Cardinal was had technically hired uh, employees that were, but the employees were acting on behalf of the pharmaceutical company, uh, which is really kind of a, a, an interesting uh, alignment. And, you know, the SEC criticized, ultimately criticized Cardinal, um, for, for failing to, to put in place controls over the activities of, of those employees and the, you know, the expenses as they were coming through, not, not, um, not vetting those expense reports, not providing training to the employees. Um, so it's an interesting fact pattern. I, I think, you know, in terms of a takeaway here, the one that really sticks out to me uh, is the, the sort of the need when you are uh, acquiring a company, uh, the need to really dive in and uh, you have continual focus and monitoring of this new business. Because what, what happened here is Cardinal took over this business in China uh, through an acquisition, took some really good steps at the beginning to identify risky behavior. Uh, in particular, they identified these marketing accounts that were uh, kind of slush funds of cash that companies were using as marketing expenses. And they realized that's a big FCPA risk. We're going to get rid of all of those. But then they at the same time decided, you know, there's, there's a few from these large European pharmaceutical companies that I think we can let stay that seem low risk. We'll let them stand. Uh, And so they did, and that might've been the right choice. Uh, but they failed then to take appropriate steps to control those. Uh, and as a result, you, you had this misconduct that came up. And, and even as red flags, the SEC points out that through the course of the next several years, there several red flags came up where, you know, I, I think at one point the, there was a Shanghai regulatory matter that should have raised a red flag that these were being used improperly. You had some internal whistleblower reports suggesting improper use and the failure to react to those red flags is ultimately led the SEC to conclude that, that, you know, they had inadequate controls, but it really started at the beginning. And, and it's a, it's a kind of a lesson that, that when you're acquiring a new business, you've got new people coming in, uh, different business practices. And not only do you have to take steps right at the beginning to, to assess the risks and make adjustments, but really have to have a continual kind of monitoring and focus for years, years beyond that. Mike, that's a great point because I think everyone would probably understand the need for post-acquisition integration, post-acquisition auditing, or perhaps a forensic audit of the acquired company. But not many compliance practitioners think about or even talk about this sort of ongoing monitoring for some period of time of a newly acquired business. Is that something that resonates with your client base? 
I think so. I mean, I, this is this truthfully ends up being a really difficult issue when you're when you're acquiring a company. Uh, there's a lot of work, you're, for, and you're a compliance practitioner. There's a lot of work at the outset, right? You, as you mentioned, you got integration. You're supposed to be training people. You get them up to, to date on your policies and procedures. At least have an alignment there. And so there's this big effort to get everybody uh, up to date in the door. It's a big push. And then, you know, there's a tendency, I think, natural tendency to sort of let your foot off the gas a little bit once you've taken that initial step. Uh, and, and just as you say, you know, it, it's, it's really important to uh, continue to monitor those, those companies, those entities for years to come. And that's not an everyday monitoring, but, but maybe it's a, an annual audit or, or periodic audit, maybe giving, having your internal audit function up, give a little bit more attention to the new business. Uh, and it certainly means if there's any type of red flag that comes up, this needs a little bit of extra focus, maybe even more so than you would do with your, your pre-existing business. Uh, my, most of my uh, corporate career, um, well, let me, re- let me start that over. As in private practice, I would tend to get brought in after the fact, uh, after a lawsuit, after a filing of an action, after a something. And obviously, when I went in-house, I was involved a little bit more on the front end of things, designing the systems, policies, procedures, and structures. In your role as counsel at Hughes Hubbard, do you tend to get brought in after all of this has occurred? Or are you able to counsel your clients on a sort of if not proactive basis, at least before the violation uh, occurs. You know, we often joke about this. It, it always seems like we're getting in just just a little bit too late. Uh, it seems that way, at least. <laughs> but no, it, in reality, it's probably both. Um, it, it's 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 probably more memorable when you get when you get brought in just just a little bit too late, and you think, "Man, I, I wish you had called me last month." But um, <laughs> You know, it, we we do have the opportunity, and and it's something I, I enjoy and relish um, to to talk to companies um, taking proactive steps, uh, and and you know you know give the same messages that hey look, you're you're making an acquisition here. We really think you you should be taking steps X Y and Z. Uh, many of them many of them do and and listen, um, but you know the the reality is resources are are scarce and. Uh, uh, you know, as a proactive measure, not all, every company is able to do absolutely everything they they maybe should or want to do uh, to prevent misconduct. Mike, the other uh, FCPA enforcement action, and indeed broader international anti-corruption enforcement action was Airbus. Airbus was the largest uh, case uh, ever in the history of the world, $3.9 billion, uh, in fines in the United States, France, and the United Kingdom. Many compliance practitioners look at the Airbus case. They even read the Airbus FCPA enforcement action or perhaps the UK or French enforcement actions, and they sit and wonder, so what First of all, how do you get your arms around it? And two, how does a case this massive with systemic corruption going literally all the way to the top of the organization apply to my U.S. manufacturing company in the heartland or my U.S. shipping company or my U.S. company doing business in a few countries overseas? What what kind of um, lessons learned can you uh, or have you been able to counsel your clients on from this case? First, this is obviously massive news. I mean, you could you could. Uh, you could dedicate entire podcasts to it, as I as I think you have in the past. I mean, it's there's so much here, as you mentioned, to really uh, get your arms around. Uh, uh, you, you know, there's a 
there's a few things. Uh, one, I, I, this is this is a, this is one of those cases. I think I feel like each year there's one or two cases that you know stand up as sort of the the, the flagship cases for the year. Last year, you know, you had Walmart last year, and maybe Erickson towards the end of the year. The year before that, you had Petrobras and. I know we're still early in 2020, but but I think we can all agree, without a doubt, that this this case will will sort of go down as as 2020's kind of premier FCPA case. Um, I, there's a few lessons. Uh, it, it, well, it, it's hard to boil it down, and and I think you're right. I, a couple of things I found interesting, maybe. Um, you know, first, and this is uh, that you know some might refer to it as a hot take. It, one of the things that struck me uh, was, in a lot of ways, this massive penalty um, could could be considered lenient. Uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, you've got this huge organization that we're talking about sums that are that are really kind of hard to fathom. Uh, you've got it going from the very top of the organization, covering. Uh, multiple continents. You know, if you you look at the at the press release by the DOJ, they they use terms like rampant corruption, corruption, years long schemes, uh, and and Airbus still managed at the end of the day uh, to to uh, agree on a penalty that was twenty five percent under the low end of the sentencing guidelines, uh, and they managed to avoid a, a you know a, a compliance monitor, and I think that's a real testament to the impact that um, remediation and uh, attention to to compliance enhancements can have on, on one of these settlements. I mean, they, they took Airbus took really great steps in both of those respects, and that that's described in the DPA and in, in the press release as well. And you know, they hired some really top notch compliance professionals, uh, really worked on on in, improving their compliance program in this interim period from when they discovered the misconduct to when they ultimately settled. And that really played out. And I think that's a lesson that can apply. You know, it doesn't matter how, how big your company is. It can really apply across the board. If, if, you know, if you do find yourself in, in one of these difficult situations, uh, remediation is, is very valuable. One of the other things that's, that's interesting to me, um, and I think, again, kind of applies across the board is, yes, this was a, a, massively complex case the facts are are incredibly complicated but when you boil it down it really comes back to some of the same high risk activities that we talk to all of our clients about and that are really prevalent in in most fcpa cases we're talking about the use of third parties gifts and hospitality i mean there's a lot more to it but but those two in particular come through in the DPA and these, these various settlements. And, you know, it, it, the, this is, these are sort of the tried and true, uh, high risk areas for, for any business. When you're, when you are engaging third parties, particularly as sales consultants, sales agents, there's a massive amount of corruption risk associated there. Uh, and still today, you know, the, the practice of, of gifts, gifts, hospitality, you know, entertainment, travel remains risky. And a lot of companies have taken really good steps in the last 10 years to, to get a handle on those two areas in particular, but they remain a risk. And it, it, this is a, another really good example of that. 
So now let's, uh, if we could move to individual enforcement actions, because we had a lot of activity in this case. Uh, I don't want to say good and bad. That's probably not the right characteristic. But we had uh, a couple of convictions. We had some plea agreements. And we also had uh, acquittals and new trials granted. So I'm just wondering if, uh, from your perspective, once again, and particularly counseling corporations, what did you see in this mismatch of individual enforcement actions? It's an exciting time in a lot of ways, I think, from our perspective, to, to be seeing some cases come through and, and where you, you start to get some case law built up because, you know, as you know, one of the, one of the issues that practitioners in this area can have often is, you know, we're counseling clients, but, but based on, on experience and, and, uh, you know, guidance that we can, we can glean from, uh, from, from settlements, uh, and there's just not a ton of case law. So it's, it's interesting to, to over the last, you know, 18 months or so to actually see some case law being built about, you know, what, what really are the requirements in the FCPA and, and kind of what are the restrictions in the FCPA, the, the application of it. You know, the, the big one, as you mentioned, I think, and it's been in the news now for, like I said, 18 months or so, is the, the Hoskins case, <clears throat> you know, employee involved in the Alstom settlement. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, you know, he was acquitted by the, the trial judge following his, his conviction at trial. Um, the, the, to me, there's not much of a huge takeaway from that particular decision, the decision of the trial judge to acquit, uh, Mr. Hoskins, Uh, essentially, uh, the trial judge determined that the, the prosecutors had not shown and and a, a jury should not have found that Hoskins was an agent of a domestic concern. And so it was, it was really more of, of an analysis of that agency uh, situation. And it, that tends to be highly fact specific. Uh, and so it's hard to take sort of long lasting, um, uh, conclu- draw long lasting conclusions from that. Uh, what, what's more interesting, I think is it's what, what is, has developed as a split now between uh, the really the second circuit in one hand with, which is where Hoskins fell in terms of saying that if you are a, a foreign national who does not act, uh, in the U S you have to be an agent of a domestic concern or an issuer. It's not, you can't be charged with aiding, abetting a domestic concern or, you know, under conspiracy theory, uh, with a domestic concern, you must be an agent. Uh, where the Seventh Circuit has taken a different approach, and that's where you can we can really offer some some guidance uh, to clients, or at least to start to think through some of the legal issues for our you know foreign non-issuer clients. You know, you have a client who's who is uh, not an issuer here, not a U.S. company, but maybe engaging in a joint venture with a U.S. company, and, and a discussion there about kind of what kind of FCPA exposure uh, might might come from that at least now we have a, a place to start to, to have those discussions with clients where before, you know, we're, you're really, like I said, uh, you're making educated guesses based on settlements that have happened and, and, you know, guidance that the DOJ has issued. Uh, and although this probably doesn't have a lot of application to the advice you give, I was almost stunned by the new trial granted in the Baptiste and bouncy cases on ineffective, uh, uh, counsel, um, 
I see uh, I see that a lot in state court cases where uh, counsel really has been ineffective for a variety of reasons. But to have this happen in a major kind of federal case, FCPA prosecution, that that really stunned me. And I wanted to get just your thoughts on that. Although, once again, probably not a lot of application to counseling you would have to give. I totally agree. Uh, stunning is, I think, the right word. Um, you know, it, it's it was stunning for I, I believe it was Baptiste's counsel who was found to be ineffective, uh, but but also you know kind of equally stunning that that the you know the court decided that the counsel for Baptiste was so ineffective that it affected the ability of of Bonsi's counsel to provide effective assistance, and so to give them both a new trial. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I you know I, I've ineffective assistance um, claims are not uncommon, uh, um, especially at the state court level, as you as you mentioned. But even in federal criminal trials, it's a it's another shot for many defendants to to to, to it's another card they can play. Uh, but truthfully, they're not often granted, and the the standards are really tough. And to see it in a high profile case like this. Um, is is absolutely uh, incredible, but very new, very newsworthy. Although, as you mentioned, you know, n- not a whole lot of uh, uh, conclusions can be drawn or advice can be given based on it. So, Mike, as we're recording this podcast in mid-April, um, sort of everyone's world has changed uh, from Q1 to the end of Q1 to even now. So we have to kind of overlay uh, the next series of questions, uh, kind of where we are now with the corona health crisis and where that may take us forward. But I wanted to maybe get your your thoughts and observations on the types of questions that you're fielding from your clients and if that's tempered or, or changed by the coronavirus crisis uh, now. Uh, you know, we can throw that in, but what are you seeing sort of from your client base? It's a, it's a strange time. I mean, I, I think that's, that's the best way to describe it. I, I think we have a lot, of, a lot of our clients are uh, obviously in some sense preoccupied, right? There's a, there's a, if you're a legal department right now, you have a lot going on aside from anti-corruption compliance. There's, it's a brave new world. You've got employment questions. You've got, you know, finance questions, all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, aside from just, you know, trying to, to make sure that your organization can continue to, to, to move forward and thrive. Um, from, from the folks that are focused on compliance, we're getting a lot of questions in terms of, okay, what, what, Given the restrictions in place, right? We what can we do now? So things like, hey, we had a an audit planned for May in this high risk location. Should we postpone it? Should we try to do it remotely? How, how do we handle that? Uh, the answers to those questions really are, it, it's 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 very fact specific, um, and we have been advising clients in, in both directions. I think uh, some clients have been moving to a. Um, to, to try to start to handle some things remotely, uh, and some, you know, where it, it would be too difficult for maybe the, you know, the reality is a lot of companies are doing business in parts of the world that don't have great remote connectivity, and so it's hard to do a an audit in a place where you can't really get a a, a consistent or reliable video connection, uh, or if there's a if there's a interviews that require you know heavy document. Um, focus where you need to be referring people to a lot of documents. It's hard to do that remotely. 
Uh, and so in some instances we have been suggesting, um, you know, postponing to, to the second half of the year. Um, but it, it's stuff like that. A lot of it's, a lot of it's logistical. Um, uh, and then a lot of it is, you know, what should we be looking out for? What should we be, uh, as, as we're all sitting at home, thinking about this stuff daily, feeling a little bit helpless, what should we be doing, uh, to, to kind of watch the company, uh, and, and do the best we can during this time. So in terms of, um, one of the things your, one of your, uh, partners, uh, Kevin Abakoff and Mike Kuniki wrote about, or, uh, and the FCPA blog was there's no COVID-19 defense. And I like to pair that with compliance never sleeps. It's a long winded way of introducing the topic of, uh, inf- where enforcement may be going. And do you have the sense that, uh, enforcement will continue at, uh, the same or similar pace? Or do you perhaps sense that the Department of Justice, uh, may also have to take some of the steps, uh, to, to step back a little bit to, to see where we might be headed? I, uh, I, the reality is, uh, I believe we will see ultimately that during this time period in particular, enforcement will necessarily slow, or at least investigations will necessarily slow. Um, the, the FBI and DOJ are, are, have, have similar travel restrictions to everybody else. Um, there's, there's a certain amount of work that can be done remotely. And I'm sure that the, the DOJ and FBI and other agencies are, are using this opportunity to do some of that stuff to, to make sure, you know, the documents that have been produced, that they're going through those carefully, uh, you know, getting out additional subpoenas or, or whatever it may be. Um, but, it, but it's, we're kidding ourselves if we don't recognize that uh, sort of enforcement momentum will be affected by this. So whether that's in Q2, Q3, Q4, that we actually see the results of that, uh, I don't know. But I think there will be at some point we will see a, a downturn in the number of cases. Now, I, I actually think that that's going to be followed probably by an increase uh, because of, of a couple of things. One, uh, you know, t- to the point of, of Kevin and, and Mike in their, you know, in their publication was it, it's, it's a challenging time for compliance officers. You've got, you've got employees out there uh, who, are, who are potentially getting desperate um, in terms of you know, building business in this difficult time. That creates a lot of risk. Uh, and so it's very possible that we see sort of a, a increased risky behavior, which will lead to more, more enforcement down the line. I, I, I do not see, I do not see as a, as a policy matter or even as a practical matter, uh, the, the department of justice saying, eh, everybody's having a hard time. Let's take our foot off the foot off the gas and let some things slide. I really don't. So if, 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 and when we do see a downturn, I think it would be temporary and really just a product of the, the sort of difficult logistics right now. When a, uh, one of your clients or you're representing someone that's in front of the department of justice and you have discussions with the DOJ, it's typically for an event that happened 
two, three, maybe even up to five years ago. But they tend to, or at least my perception is they tend to be judged by current standards of best practices. So we took that logic and extended it out uh, for events that might happen uh, in 2020 or incidents that might happen in 2020. Uh, it could be 2022, 2023, even later when the department of, when someone like yourself has to sit down with the Department of Justice and negotiate. Um, and my concern is that in 2022 or 2023 or 2024, the DOJ may say, hey, everybody was having a tough time in, in Q1 and Q2. Uh, and uh, they didn't take uh, their compliance pro- program didn't sleep. Was, is that a message that uh, you think resonates or that you would counsel companies around? For sure. I, I, I think you're exactly right. Uh in, in 2023, 2024, I mean, you know, it could be even much later, it, let's be honest, the way that the, way that the statute of limitations is, is sort of uh, malleable a, a little bit in the FCPA context. Um, you know, it, it's not going to be much of an excuse that, hey, 2020 was a tough year. It, it just won't. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, people tend to be short-sighted. Um, it's hard to, to sort of flip back to, to 2020, uh, in your mindset and realize, oh yeah, how, how about all those difficulties? Uh, but also, you know, I, I just don't see the department of justice giving a, a free pass. And so, um, you know, we're definitely I- advising clients that this is not a time, um, despite all the temptations, this is not a time to, to sort of, from a compliance perspective, take your foot off the gas. This is not a time to dial it back. Uh, understand the business is tough and, and you're going to get even more pressure from your, your business counterparts, your business partners, uh, you know, to move compliance processes along quickly. Uh, but this is not going to be a defense. It's, it's simply not. Uh, and so whatever, you know, worst case, when this comes up in, in a few years and, and the DOJ comes in, you're not going to be able to say, hey, it was during the coronavirus. Uh, uh, it was during the coronavirus epidemic, k- pandemic. Can you you know, cut us a break here? It just That's not going to be a viable defense. Well, Mike, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time. But once again, this has been a, a great conversation. And uh, perhaps we can uh, make this a quarterly event and uh, take a look at what Q2 may uh, have uh, shown us as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I, uh, I'm, I'd love that. It's, uh, it's always great to, to come in and, and talk shop with you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will join me for next week's episode where I take up another topic of FCPA or compliance related. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thank you again for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.